Right, good morning, and sorry to do such a rushed transition from Ian to um, a panel discussion, but I always consider the panel discussion to be actually the most effective in terms of giving you, the participants, what you really want, which is an opportunity not only to listen, but also to contribute. And frankly, it's what this conference and any conference should be about. It's about participation from the audience. Um, the panel is not quite composed. Uh, as it was earlier. It's changed a number of times in the last 24 hours. Um, uh, Ian has been a constant member of it, uh, and Ian, as it were, has introduced the topic with his excellent um, uh, presentation that we just heard. Um, Andrew Feinstein has always been a member of it, and he in particular has uh, things to say, I think, about uh, the, the issue that we're discussing. So I'm going to give him a first crack of the whip, as it were, uh, but under severe time constraints. Uh, so he knows now, he does know. Um, Andrew is widely known, was, was widely known in, in, in South Africa as Mr. Clean. Uh, as an MP, he put, took a particular interest and viewed with con considerable concern uh, the nature of certain arms deals in South Africa, uh, which uh, he investigated from his position with, as a member of Parliament. Uh, he has now resigned from the ANC and resigned from Parliament. He is now, uh, we benefit from his presence here, uh, <laughs> and we all benefit from his first book, After the Party, and I'm sure we will benefit from his second book, uh, now I think in final stages being written, maybe concluded. But in the meantime, he and Sue Hawley have started something called Corruption Watch, uh, which we all need. Um, Colin Nichols is not uh, billed for the panel, but he has stepped into the shoes very quickly, vacated by Chandu, who we've already heard from anyway. Colin um, is, like somebody else in the audience, uh, very well known as the author of the standard, now essential textbook on corruption in the United Kingdom, and far broader, in fact, um, with himself, John Hatchard, Tim Daniel, and Martin Pellet. Correct? And Macarese. Okay. And uh, Alan Macarese. And Alan Macarese. Um, anyway, their second edition, I hope, will hit the bookstalls. Is it in? Uh, no? Not yet. No, no. Not yet. <laughs> but um, they've been hanging far while we wait interminably for uh, the Bribery Act to come into force. Um, but uh, it threatens to be rather a large volume. So, um, our topic is judicial approaches tackling corruption, which, as I said, does follow on from um, uh, many of the, the, the presentation that Ian's given. But we also heard from um, Charlie Faulkner earlier, and Lord Faulkner was commendably candid about the failure of his government colleagues um, as a government to have acted swiftly in terms of producing the response which many of us knew from 1997 or 1998 when we committed to, uh, we as a country, as a government, committed to um, ratify the OECD Anti-Bribery Convention. We knew that the legislation had to be changed. The Law Commission had been saying so for years. The Salmon Commission had been saying so since the, since the 70s. And yet there was 13 years of feet dragging and resistance. Um, Lord Faulkner was candid about that and the failure of his government. I would have liked to have put to him whether he felt any sense of collective uh, responsibility with regard to one of his more prominent colleagues, 
the then Attorney General. Um, he was one of a whole spate that's been referred to by Lord Faulkner of articles written in particular by the Evening Standard and the Daily Telegraph, basically seeking to articulate what undoubtedly exists, which is some very concerted lobbying on this government to weaken, undermine, postpone, somehow denude the Bribery Act of the effect that we know it should have. That uh, I was struck in particular when the Telegraph produced, Lord Goldsmith urges plea bargaining in bribery cases. <laughs> when you consider that, as we now know from the affidavits and other statements made in the corner house cat case against the SFO over the abandonment of the um, uh, BAE uh, investigation, the Al-Yamama investigation, and we know that it was Lord Goldsmith as Attorney General, instead of complying with his own guidelines, which Ian has just put up on the board, who actually made it absolutely certain that Robert Wardle, who was proposing a plea bargain with um, British Aerospace, actually had to, it was his last act before he was left nowhere to go other than to discontinue the investigation altogether. So it's not so much about judicial, but it's a part way the way in which the legal system operates. Ian spoke to a question, do civil settlements deter bribe pay? I don't think he answered it. I think that may be for this panel to answer, and I'm going to ask Andrew, as it were, to launch the topic in an effective manner. How long do you want me to talk for? Five minutes? Five. 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 Okay. Um, thank you very much, and, and thank you very much for the invitation to be here. Um, as was mentioned, I, I come at these issues primarily from somebody who experienced the impact um, of corruption, not just on a country, but particularly on its system of governance and, and the rule of law as a member of parliament trying to investigate um, a massive arms deal that South Africa signed that will cost in excess of $6 billion for weapons that the country barely uses today, has never needed, that the defense force itself didn't particularly want at the time, but $300 million of, bribery, of bribes were paid on the deal, um, a significant amount of it to my own political party, the ANC, from which I haven't resigned. Yeah. I resigned only from Parliament, and in fact, when I was elected to Parliament for the second time, it was partly um, on the basis of, of that bribe money. And I also should mention that I do focus in, in my current work on the arms trade. So I am going to be fairly narrow in my focus, for which I apologize, because the arms trade is, I believe, something of of a dark spot of anti-corruption work. And I think that there are very specific reasons why the arms trade is so blighted by corruption. I think the size of the deals, the very few people involved in the decision-making process, and the ability to conceal behind the veil of national security and commercial confidentiality um, a lot more of the malfeasance in these deals than has anything to do with either national security or commercial confidentiality. And so I do think that fighting corruption in the arms trade has an enormous amount to do not just with legislation and the various institutional structures, but with political will. Um, if I look at the past decade or so of corruption in the arms trade, and I'm asked, is corruption in the arms trade increasing? Is it getting better? Is it worse? 
because of the various enforcement mechanisms that have been attempted, some of which have been discussed and some of which I'm going to mention, I probably have to say that, that, that there was a piece of work done through Transparency International, their defense group here, um, that suggested that in 2003, corruption in the arms trade um, was responsible probably for almost 40% of corruption in all world trade, a, a truly staggering figure. Um, and if I look at, at the period since 2003 for the research that I'm doing for the, the book that will be published later this year on the global arms trade and its impact on accountable democracy, I'd have to suggest that um, the findings at the moment indicate that corruption in the arms trade continues to increase. And that's a consequence, one, of um, the sort of procurement practices in the light of the so-called war on terror, um, to the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, where there have been all sorts of material <coughs> procurement practices um, that are perhaps far worse than anything that, that preceded those conflicts. Um, and then I would also say the increasing role of China in the manufacture and sale of armaments and the nature of the way in which China sells weaponry, particularly on the African continent, has also contributed to that in recent years. Um, in terms of, of the various judicial um, approaches to combating corruption in the arms trade, let me dwell for a moment on, on the issue of settlements, which of course we've seen in the BAE case um, regularly. And in, and in many instances, I think that the types of plea bargains, the types of settlements that have been entered into are seen often in the countries who suffer the consequences of the corruption as an undermining of justice, especially as the settlement penalties, particularly the financial penalties, tend to be, as, as was suggested, very small by comparison to the profits made on the deals. Because when we talk about, for instance, the BAE fines, which let's put it a total figure of $450 million, that has to be set against not only the profits they made in Tanzania, but the massive profits they made in South Africa on a contract that they weren't even shortlisted to, which accounted for more than two-thirds of the corruption in the South African case, on which they made absolutely massive pro um, profits and the profits of their contracts in Eastern Europe um, that were set aside as a consequence of the U.S. settlement. Um, I also think that if one... that that there is a perception that these settlements are in fact a way in which large arms companies can simply pay money to avoid costly and often what would be deeply embarrassing and revealing legal trials. And one remark I would have made to Lord Faulkner's comment is that much of what he said must be tempered by the reality that because of what I describe as the two BAE debacles, both this recent settlement and the, um, the closing down of, of the investigation into Al-Yamama, the UK's bona fides in fighting corruption, I believe, have been severely harmed. A very senior South African member of Parliament, when the settlement, the latest settlement of the AE was announced, stood up in Parliament, she's since become a provincial minister, and stated that the United Kingdom should never again deign to criticise an African government on issues of corruption or governance after the handling of the BAE case. So I think that these settlements have an impact 
on political and issues of governance and rule of law that perhaps go beyond what we've discussed so far. Um, in terms of the settlements, obviously the nature of the settlements is very important. If we compare the US and the UK settlements on BAE, they really are chalk and cheese. There is an incredibly important paragraph in the US settlement that makes absolutely clear why they're entering into this plea agreement and what BAE has been involved in. And on the basis of that paragraph alone, the Department of State in the United States is still in the process of deciding whether to grant BAE future export licenses for the export of weaponry and material from, from the US. The UK case, by example, is an absolute catastrophe that includes nothing of that sort that reflects what was actually going on. And just anecdotally, let me give you an indication of what happened. The day that the settlement was announced, I was sitting in the offices of the Serious Fraud Office, with whom I have worked quite closely on the South African and other cases, and a formal statement was being taken from me because of my role in the arms deal in South Africa. It was, I don't know how many statements I've given, but it was yet another statement. And the reason I'd been called back in to give this formal witness statement was because the team investigating the South African case believed that they had a very strong case. And they were pre preparing documentation for the Attorney General based on what they saw was the strength of their case. And as we were walking out of the offices, they started receiving text messages that the settlement had been reached, which for some of them was the first they knew about it. Now, I'm afraid to say that to an outsider like myself, who perhaps comes from a, a less developed and sophisticated democracy, I felt as though I was part of a carry-on movie. And I think that perhaps exemplified the nature of that settlement. Let me very quickly, it, I'll take no more than 30 seconds, just raise a number of very specific issues that might or might not be relevant for our discussion relating to, to these settlements. First of all, I think the point that Lord Faulkner made about the prosecution of individuals, especially in relation to the arms trade, is extremely important. Um, there is work being done by an academic called James Stewart at the University of British Columbia at the moment, looking at the use of international criminal law to prosecute individuals and arms companies where weapons have been used um, in cases of genocide or gross violations of human rights. Then a point that was mentioned by Ian, that of debarment, extremely important. You have the case in the United States of the Boeing Corporation who won a massive contract um, to provide um, jet tanker refuelers. There was massive corruption in the deal. The procurement was then cancelled. And since then, lawmakers in the Pentagon have gone to the most extraordinary lengths to ensure that Boeing receive the contract again when it is reissued, which is due during the course of this year. So I think debarment, graded based on the severity of the offences for serial offenders, is something that has to be given far greater consideration in relation to the arms trade. And then the whole issue, which, which requires a, a great deal of conversation and, and, and serious thought, but the issue of the rights of victims. Um, and related to that, the issue of reparations. The Tanzanian case has raised a whole lot of issues. To whom should those reparations be paid? How should they be disbursed, etc., etc.? But the principle of fines or money from these settlements, not simply being awarded to the country where the corruptors are located, 
but also in some ways being made available to the victims of that corruption, I think is a very important principle. And then the whole issue that was, was also mentioned um, at some length by Ian of transparency in these types of settlements. For instance, in Maybe and Johnson, what was absolutely crucial was the fact that some of those who had been bribed were going to be named. Now, this becomes incredibly important in terms of the impact of corruption on issues of governance, on issues of rule of law in the countries that have been involved in the corruption. So issues around the naming of the bribe and intermediaries used, what they were used for and what they were paid in relation to the arms trade become very important issues in relation to transparency. And let me finally conclude simply by saying that with respect to the new anti-bribery law in the United Kingdom, which I, like many others, welcome, with respect to the trade in arms, I am concerned that it is not going to make much difference. And I base that on my, my opening remark, which is that when it comes to trade in weapons and material, it is unfortunately down to the political will of the government concerned as to whether large arms companies who are identified with particular countries, whether they are in fact ever prosecuted for bribery and corruption. And I must tell you that on the basis of the research I've been doing for the last five and a half years for the current book, that outside of Russia, China, India and Italy, of the world's larger economies with significant arms industries, BAE Systems and the United Kingdom defense industry is far and away the most protected by its own government and legal system. All too depressing. Um, excellent. Thank you very much, Andrew, indeed. Um, I want to pass the baton to Colin now, but on a particular point. Um, Andrew picked up on Ian's uh, observations about the differences between um, the United States and the United Kingdom. And this has a particular aspect. There are a number of obvious points, like, for instance, in the United States, um, the Department of Justice has ready access to a grand jury. The grand jury has extraordinary powers to demand evidence, to call individuals or corporations to account, almost without any justification. So that's one major power that we lack over here. Uh, the United States also lacks any system of judicial review. The judges in this country have developed a way of checking the exercise of power by our administration, by our executive, in a very effective way by judicial review, but it simply doesn't exist in the United States. In other words, the prosecuting authorities can get away with uh, much more without fear of being checked by the courts. However, there are other differences that are of more subtle nature, and I wonder whether we can tease some of those out. The fact that we have this complicated legal profession that we have, the fact that judges are part of a process whereby the profession bleeds into the judiciary, they work so closely and rely so dependently on the senior members of the bar, the way in which the solicitors uh, deal with the clients direct almost to the exclusion of the bar in a traditional way, and one has seen, for instance, in relation to the BAE settlement, how the way in which those representing BAE have driven the SFO almost to total defeat on so many issues in terms of whitewashing, everything that might have been happening. Now, you would think that a respectable company would not want that said, but no, they want absolute whitewash. Now, are we 
really best equipped in this country to meet the challenges in order to produce some, something harmonious, to produce the same sort of results that we know are necessary to deal with any developed economy? Or are we, in fact, going to continue to be quite different and therefore vulnerable? I'm conscious too, for instance, of the way in which we produce good results in relation to Zambia, but the Zambian courts just the judge for no real reason at all throughout that result. And the Zambian Attorney General said, no, 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 we don't want British courts to tell us what to do. Now, we do want British courts to be able to exercise a voice that's going to have influence. And yet, things like British Aerospace are spending the wrong message around the world and picking up in exactly the same way you said. Does any of that resonate with you, Colin? Well, I think that it all really begins, doesn't it, with the uh, prosecuting uh, agencies. And the prosecuting agencies, of course, uh, have their investigators, whether the investigators come in first or whether they come in at the same time or afterwards. But it all starts with the prosecuting agencies. And you can't have any prosecution unless the agencies um, exercise the initiative. The uh, agencies, either nowadays at an early stage, but the old days later, they bring in the lawyers. They've got to bring in experienced lawyers. They've got to bring in uh, lawyers who have a sense of balance, quite apart from being aware of their duty to uh, uh, prosecute a case. And uh, so I'm not really sure that there is a difference between the situation in uh, England and in the United States. I know there's a difference in the person who does the prosecuting, or ultimately there's a difference so far as the barrister is concerned, but there's not necessarily a difference so far as the employee, the uh, lawyer in the SFO is concerned. So I don't think really that uh, there is a difference. What of course, Jeremy, you're referring to in particular is what uh, appears to be this uh, closeness, this proximity between the barristers, maybe particularly the senior barristers, and the judges. Well, it does exist. It uh, normally uh, uh, creates some, <coughs> an, an element of trust, which one might have not have in uh, other countries. But I don't think I've ever really known of a case of real importance where a judge, a judge has been prepared to accept something from a barrister just because he happens to be who he is or because uh, he happens to have a particular reputation. Judges, in my experience, are very, very quick to come down on what they don't like. And certainly uh, that happened in Innerspec and it has happened in particular in the recent BAE case. So I don't think there's a difference in the profession. It really makes um, uh, is anything of any consequence. Uh, another thing that we might have in mind is this, that the uh, English legal profession is undergoing uh, enormous changes at the moment, whether we finish up with uh, fusion or whether we finish up with uh, far fewer um, barristers, uh, we don't know. But um, I think this factor, it, it isn't really a factor uh, now. Uh, but just considering the position of the judges for a moment, 
the question is really raised as to whether the judges should come in much earlier. Um, I don't know, and I now have reason to look at it uh, uh, before bringing the book out, uh, <laughs> what the uh, situation is um, in uh, France when it comes to pleas of this kind. What happens in civil jurisdiction? We all know that in civil jurisdiction you'll be with the prosecutor, then you go to the investigating magistrate, the investigating magistrate, investigating magistrate uh, does a, a whole lot of the inquiry and investigation, and he ultimately decides as to whether the case will go forward for trial. So there he is, uh, maybe exercising, and I say I've got to look at it, uh, maybe exercising initiatives which um, our judges are not in a position to exercise. The question is whether they should or not. Now we all know <coughs> that judges, particularly in serious fraud cases, um, have uh, uh, developed uh, procedures, particularly through the uh, preparatory hearings and the like, where they take a uh, very much uh, larger part in uh, cases than they used to. I remember coming in front of uh, Mr. Justice Buxton, as he then was in uh, the uh, very substantial BCCI trial. And uh, in uh, that case, it was amazing how uh, this um, Oxford academic, I am right, he's at Oxford, I think he was strong. Anyway, this uh, academic uh, came in and he bombarded us. He bombarded us with facts after facts, as it was in those days, <coughs> insisting that we uh, provided him with faxes of our arguments, he coming back to us and saying, I've read what you have to say, you haven't considered this and this and that and so on, and my preliminary views are as follows. And so it was quite interesting to have this uh, uh, academic approach being adopted by him, and then when we got to court, him telling me that I wouldn't be allowed to cross-examine all sorts of witnesses, particularly the Bank of England and uh, Pricewaterhouse and the like, Eventually, uh, I got my way, but uh, there one had this involved the part of a judge. But of course, the judge is only working within the confines that he has uh, provided for him by the prosecutor, and he can't go outside it. And I do wonder whether really it is right that a judge should really be able to become, or should become, uh, an investigator he then becomes, in a way, a prosecutor. He may also be a defender. But I'm not so sure the judges should come in uh, that early. I think they should... Um, uh, I think what we have at the moment is good. Uh, I think that it uh, is clear from the judgments that uh, there have been a lot of serious failings, because they are serious failings, uh, which the judges have uh, pointed out. Uh, but I think the system we have is good. We have the Attorney General's guidelines. We have the consolidated practice uh, direction. And it's clear that uh, there can only be an indication of the range of sentencing. You can't have or should not be an agreement as, as to specific figures. And the, the judge should have and complete discretion as to what the sentence should be. Um, just as a matter of personal reflection, when I started at the bar, and probably the first 10 or 15 years at the bar, um, I spent quite a lot of time in the judge's room, 
either as defender or prosecutors, <coughs> initially having informally unrecorded uh, discussions about what the plea should be and getting an indication as to whether somebody would go to prison or whether they wouldn't or whatever it might be. And eventually the shorthand writer was brought in and after the shorthand writer was allowed in, we then started to do it in open court. <coughs> and I must say, I never liked the earlier system, but uh, a lot of my colleagues uh, thrived on it, <coughs> so it didn't go uh, way so far. Now we're in a much more complicated process. Uh, I think this scrutiny that we've got, which is shown in Innospec, we've got Justice Thomas and BAE in the uh, Justice Beam, I think this scrutiny is um, very important and uh, the judges may perhaps or should be sending the prosecutors back or the, both, all the parties back to investigate certain matters, uh, provide certain evidence which was not provided in BA as it happened. Uh, they could play, but I think this will work its way out and be much preferable to what goes on in the United States. Thank you, Colin. Um, the floor is open. Uh, at the back in the aisle, middle of the aisle. Richard Rose, can I introduce something and ask the panel where the European courts, European law come into this? Because they've been strikingly not mentioned. And if they have nothing to say, I would also add the point that the civil Europe market Schengen and all that. The proposal to expand the control of the reaches, the borders of Ukraine, where they don't need to publish the fees for getting things done, because people know. It does raise something in between the global level and the UK level, which might be the subject of a different conference. But just where does UK law come in? Well, it. it, it, it the question is very valid. Um, Colin mentioned his own ignorance about precisely what sort of factors weigh with French investigating magistrates and judges when they come to it. Uh, but uh, this is probably one of the major areas of our own, um, I think it's not too strong a word to say weakness. Our legal system is so different from the continental one uh, and that's also from the Scottish one, uh, and is more like the United States, although as we've seen it's very different from that. Uh, we know that investigating judges in Germany, in Italy, in Italy they've been particularly courageous in precipitating, the whole Siemens scandal and affair was precipitated by investigations two judges were carrying out into Parmalat in Milan, or is it Turin, uh, and stumbled into these bribes that were being paid. They asked some questions of, of, of Siemens, and the whole lot came out uh, progressively over the space of two or three years. Now, they have powers, and they are exercising them. It's not just Eva Jolly, who was very high-profile, and took uh, the French Minister of Defense and various other senior uh, government officials and, uh, and uh, to court and to task for involvement in bribery with Elf and others. Um, the Germans have done this, the Italians have done this, the Spanish have done this, um, and they seem to do it with some success. We are a bit cloggy. 
I confess a certain amount of ignorance, as I've already done so. But um, what I'm concerned about is that uh, these investigations become too long and they're very, very slow. And what we've got happening at the present moment is, in the United States and in the UK, that cases are being effectively prosecuted and disposed of, and they're sending a warning out to others. What uh, was the problem in 10, 15 years ago, or maybe even more closer was, that we had a whole series of unsuccessful <coughs> SFO prosecutions. I remember losing two and winning one. And I've still got at home a photograph of the KO of George Walker, where he managed to be cleared of all offences. But the danger was the SFO was not winning cases. Prosecutions were ineffective. Now we have something happening, and it's sending the uh, warning out. Um, it would be interesting to know the details in Italy. Italy had the worst reputation for delay in prosecutions, and it's still happening in Italy, where cases are not able to be brought forward and people are not able to be sentenced because the delays are, are so long. It was only incidentally in Craxley that uh, uh, the cases went through at very rapid speed, one of the reasons being that he was in Hammermet and never turned up. <laughs> and interestingly, um, when Craxley was asked the question, what is your defence? His reply was, why did they pick on me? We're talking about a conventional framework that's quite tight. I mean, the, the, the arrival of the European legal space is quite well advanced in, in, in terms of general principle. The set of conventions that we signed up to, European conventions on bribery, in advance even of the, of the, uh, the UNCAC and others, are very extensive. Andrew, you want a quick remark? Two very quick points. The first is that, uh, interestingly, in terms of the EU, the EU's common position on arms exports, um, which came into place just before <coughs> the South African deal was, was signed, involving five EU member states, was irrelevant in the South African case because it doesn't apply to government-to-government -government contracts, which are the main large-scale arms transactions that occur. Um, a second point just to note is that um, a group I work with in Albania um, are trying the route of the European Court for Human Rights um, as a consequence of a case that involves corruption of senior politicians that led to multiple deaths in a community after an explosion of an arms factory due to you no know, safety precautions and various other things. And they have had no joy through the Albanian courts and have now just received permission to take their case to the European Court for Human Rights. So it'll be quite interesting to see what comes of that. Can I ask you to give me a show of how many people have questions? And I think what I... Oh, right, OK. I'm going to take five together, and I'm starting on the extreme right. The, the lady there. Uh, hi, my name is Julia Thompson, I'm an Institute of Business Ethics. This question is really it's sort of sidestepping along just for a minute, um, and it's really directed at Andrew, and I wonder what your opinion is on voluntary initiatives like the International Forum 
purposes, ethics, and corruption, defense, and aerospace industry, and initiatives in America like defense and DI defense industry initiative for uh, again for defense. Sure. Thank you. Tim, behind. Tim Vanderbilt, I'm from the authors. Um, coming back to the question of uh, what happens in Europe, um, just very briefly, I think there is a, a very stark difference, um, particularly in the area, for example, of asset recovery. Um, recovery and proceeds approach, uh, where the Swiss magistrates uh, show the way uh, what can be done by investigating the magistrate um, in pursuing the assets of uh, general that. Um, and there, their investigation led to uh, a half billion judgment uh, in the Swiss Supreme Court. Uh, and it also led the evidence that was uncovered in the proceedings have led to recoveries in other jurisdictions. So that obviously, four billion that, that uh, Abacha took during his uh, four and a half years of office, uh, so far, it's been on three billion has been recovered. Now, um, I think that's, that's very instructive, just as the recent case, um, uh, attempts by TI um, and um, Sherpa, to uh, get the French government to look at the assets which have been sorted away in France by uh, various uh, African leaders, particularly Tourkin uh, and Gabon, the companies that they own that, and they have they've just succeeded in getting the investigating magistrate there to open an investigation. Uh, and that's a, that's a great triumph, because this is sort of public interest uh, type litigation. Um, and that I just don't see happening under our present system. Okay. Um, but you know, it's an example of the way in which on the continent these things are done differently uh, and you know, can lead to possibly to very effective results. Thank you, point. Uh, very good point. Uh, anybody else on the right-hand side of the... Anyone else on the right? Yes, one at the back. Hi, I'm George Bowden. I work for Global Wellness. Um, this, this is straying slightly from the, the sort of very narrow focus in terms of uh, judicial approaches, but it does seem to me, and I'd be interested to hear from the panel, that one of the key problems is, is actually receiving evidence in the first place, uh, and for these things to come light to light. And I think this goes to what Andrew said um, in terms of. Uh, whether governments have an interest in this. And I think there's, you know, is there sufficient resources being put into the initial investigations before cases actually come to light and go to court? Uh, and also, is there sufficient transparency for a sufficient number to come to court uh, or to come to, come to light in order to, reach to provide a sufficient deterrent? Um, it's all very well to have a very few number of cases, but are, is there the opportunity for a sufficient number of cases to come to light given current lack of transparency and lack of funding in those institutions and possibly whistleblowers as well. Thank you. I'll take one from the back of this. Yes, that gentleman. Uh, yes, Arazin Sabidin, of Western Sydney. Uh, my question is really based on the issue of extraterritoriality. Uh, my first question is, how do you handle the problem of double jeopardy and how do you be prosecuted in more than one Good question. And the second one, how do you handle or blocking statute? I have in mind, for example, the UK blocking statute against the US yep. Trade Act, Section 3.0. Thank you very much. And one at the back. That one at the back. Yeah, I think one colleague from Ian, you mentioned the Inspect case, and Colin, you mentioned about the level of fines. Uh, 
Could civil settlement, settlement be shaped by economic considerations such as companies with ability to pay or the risk of losing the company as a tax and employment provider? If so, uh, well, if not, should we be bankrupting these companies? And if so, does that send a message of affordable risk to other companies interested in bribing? That one's for Ian. I'm going to take that one first. Andrew. Um, Julia, voluntary initiatives. Um, it's, it's better to have them than to have nothing at all. But I'm not a huge fan because I have very real concerns around issues of monitoring and enforcement, especially in relation to defense industries and the amount of information that remains out of the public domain because of national security and commercial confidentiality issues. But um, they're certainly better than nothing at all. But in terms of the monitoring and enforcement, maybe we should talk um, over lunch or something in more detail about that because I don't want to take... Double jeopardy. Colin, who'd like to take job, double jeopardy? Well, if you've got uh, investigations in uh, two countries and the uh, prosecutors are uh, working together, they should uh, be able to decide uh, which prosecutor is going to deal with one aspect of the matter and which prosecutor is going to deal with the other. If there is a prosecution in the one country with a conviction and then uh, the matter comes up in another country, the uh, second country will need to consider whether double jeopardy does arise. And you can have a uh, defence, of course, of ultravise acquit or convict. And so that um, <coughs> ought to provide the answer. Um, there is, of course, the other very difficult issue at the present moment, and topical issue, that you get um, somebody being um, prosecuted, an English person being prosecuted, in the United States for matters which uh, really are much more relevant to uh, the United Kingdom. And so you get complaints, the Tesla case was an illustration of it, and of course the NatWest 3, where uh, there was the complaint that uh, these matters would have been more appropriate for the United Kingdom. Now, in uh, Tesla, I can't remember whether he's gone back yet or not, I don't think he has. But uh, because rather like McKinnon, I think it's being delayed, that's being extradited to the United States. In that OS3, we know, of course, they all went back to the United States. But all that actually is going to be subject to review when the extradition uh, treaty with the United States is reconsidered by the uh, new coalition government. I'll, I'll take, if I may, the, the um, extraterritorial aspect. We have to live with the fact that all over the world people are assuming a broader reach of jurisdiction. It's not just developed nations, not just the United States. We all are. The United Kingdom has legislated its criminal law significantly beyond its jurisdictional limit, just as our civil law has had a universal impact by choice, as it were, all over. What we haven't worked out is how to resolve the conflicts of jurisdiction. Blocking statutes are one way, but we haven't seen those except in very narrow areas of protection of trading interests. Uh, we have seen it in relation to extraterritoriality and the reach of sanctions. But, for instance, 
old presumptions that fiscal laws had to stay at home, those have been broken. We're now seeing exercises in obtaining information from tax havens, which are assisting that process of enabling prosecutions to take place. Um, a lot of the NGOs represented here have campaigned vigorously for extraterritorial, I mean, universal jurisdiction over crimes against humanity. Now, that comes as a price. If you apply extraterritoriality on this basis, we have interesting questions of whether or not we are creating double jeopardy, triple jeopardy, or whatever. And there's very little interest, it seems, on the part of governments really to sit down and work out solutions for the way in which this opportunity to prosecute for the same or similar set of facts in a number of different jurisdictions at the criminal law level and at the civil law level, the way that should be resolved. Anyway, Ian, we're going to take the transparency of, it, of evidence and... Yep, um, well, I'll probably also take the SFO, SFO funding quickly yes. as well. Take um, <coughs> as, as regards the resources of investigators, um, no, they don't have sufficient resources. And as was mentioned earlier on today, um, one of the key reasons why the DOJ enter all these settlement arrangements is because they don't have the resources either. I think in the US, well over 90% of cases are settled um, rather than going to contested trials. Um, in terms of the SFO, a, a case like BAE, but that's not probably right, would probably require special funding from the Treasury to, to carry out the investigation. They couldn't do it under their, their normal budget constraints. Um, the question, therefore, is do they actually have the sufficient resources to carry out the investigations, even taking it up to the, the, the plea arrangement? Um, and that is, that is a, a quite difficult task, I, I suspect. Um, if they were very busy, no, they wouldn't. They'd have to select, select cases very carefully. Um, in terms of the, the other question on the, the companies, um, do we take into account you know, the employees, etc., when we go forward with uh, corporate prosecutions? Well, of course, under the, the Code for Crown Prosecutors, one of the tests is public interest tests. And so they are able to look at the, the impact of the prosecution on other stakeholders in companies. And that would be, an, that would be entirely justifiable in looking at uh, what impact a criminal prosecution would have on a company. Um, and I suspect um, they're entitled to do that. Um, and I expect that within there, they would look at to see whether or not the conduct of the company has changed. Uh, but if it hasn't changed, it's an aggravating feature, so you proceed with a criminal prosecution. But if it, if it has changed and there's dire effects on other stakeholders, they can take that into account in deciding whether or not to proceed with a criminal prosecution. Thank you. A moment on... Very quickly. I mean, just to say, unsurprisingly, my view would be that there is insufficient transparency at all sorts of levels. Um, but I think, just to make an important point in relation to that, two points. First is the crucial role of the media, and especially in, in less developed democracies. Uh, absolutely crucial. And that raises real concerns about how money is, is just disappearing for, for detailed investigative journalism. Um, and that would apply as much here as it does in, in South Africa, other parts of Africa, Latin America. The second thing, just to say, is, is, is that I think that um, there's some work going on through the Open Society Institute in New York at the moment around freedom of information and national security. 
And my sense is what is going to come out of that is after this initial almost celebration of greater transparency in governments, um, post-9-11, post-7-7, there, there has been something of a closing down again in terms of the availability of information. And the final point, just to say, in 85 to 90% of the cases relating to the arms trade that I've dealt with, the people who come out worst of all are whistleblowers, or well, one Pentagon whistleblower likes to call himself a closet patriot, um, and investigators. There is just this litany of tragic stories of the consequences of blowing the whistle or trying to investigate some of these cases. That's the last word from this panel, but there are still some questions. I'd like you to ask them so that we can talk about them at lunch, over lunch. Yes, Joss? So I wanted to pick up on the whistleblower point. Uh, in the US, consumer protection legislation heavily incentivizes whistleblowers. There's been some very interesting recent cases where um, the, of the order of half a billion dollars has been awarded penalties, and whistleblowers have left 20 to 30% of that. I wonder whether there's any research done on how that might work in terms of uh, corruption prosecution. Okay. One more behind. Yes, um, just a question. It was a comment more than a question. I think this morning's been really good at telling us you know, what the bribery act is and what it should do. But I can't help but feel it's a real shame there wasn't a representative of an organisation who's kind of caught in the middle and could tell us what really happened. What's it like to open a, an office in downtown Eastern Europe? Um, like for instance, it would be very interesting to see what BAE would have to say about the whole process. Will the bribery act change how business is up? You have the great advantage that you've got the whole of the afternoon when some of these questions may be answered. <laughs> one more. One more. One more. Anybody? No. Right. One there. Quick. Very quickly. Um, the problem with Italy is that the Thank you very much indeed. And I'd like to invite you to express your thanks not only to the three members of the panel, but also to Ian, because he hasn't really had the recognition for what it is. <laughs> <laughs>